This is The Guardian. Today, writer George Monbiot on the solution to a global food crisis. A marvellous substance that we've been treating like dirt. The trend first appeared about seven years ago, noticed by people who study the world's food supply. Like the writer, George Monbiot. Humanity has never produced as much food as it does today. And yet, over the past few years, the number of people going hungry is going up. World hunger started ticking up in 2015 after a very long decline and it's been rising ever since. And yet it started rising just as world food prices started falling. So something weird and systemic is going on. People who study complex systems like economies, the climate, or the world's food system say that before they collapse, there are warning signs, weird phenomena they call flickerings. And flickering, it tends to be what happens when a system is approaching a tipping point. Its outputs begin to flicker and shocks start being transmitted through the system which weren't happening before. And it looks ominous. This flickering points to a system whose foundations aren't holding anymore. One that's more vulnerable to shocks, like a war between two of the world's biggest grain exporters. The United Nations has warned the war in Ukraine could cause global food shortages for tens of millions of people. The Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said the conflict could lead to poor nations facing famine for many years. Monbiot hasn't just been studying the frailties of the global food system. He's been exploring what he says is the solution. And both of them, the danger we're in and the way out of it, begin with something we've been surrounded by our whole lives, looking down on, the soil beneath our feet. And and what we're looking at here is the loss of our subsistence. 99% of our calories come from soil. Everything we are, everything we've built, everything in our lives comes from the soil. Without it, we're finished. That's it, curtains for humanity and most of the rest of life on Earth. And yet, we treat it with this extreme disrespect and disregard. Everything depends on it. And yet, we sort of just think, oh, it's just mucky stuff which gets in the way. Monbiot's plan to avert a food crisis starts with rethinking the way we look at soil, but it moves way beyond it to a radical proposal that's making enemies of both farmers and environmentalists. Not just a call to change farming, but to begin to move away from it altogether. The system isn't working. It's not working for Earth systems. It's not working for human systems either. People are waking up to the fact that something has to change and has to change very fast. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, writer George Monbiot on how to feed the world without destroying it. So, George, what you're proposing is a new way to restructure the food system, the whole way we approach the natural world in order to make it more resilient. And to try to understand what you're proposing here, to start at the root of it all, tell me about why soil is actually something quite majestic. 
So under your average square meter of ground um, in a place like the UK, you might have several hundred thousand small animals distributed among several thousand species, about 90% of which are unknown to science. I mean, this is like the Amazon rainforest. And, and some of those species will be in groups, in whole classes or whole phyla you've probably never heard of. And, and when you first take a powerful lens to the soil, it's like diving, like snorkeling for the first time. You put your head under and it just bursts into life. You see these extraordinary creatures. You've never seen anything like it. Things like that don't exist above ground. It's this magical realm and it's absolutely swarming with life. So at the micro level, you've got bacteria using the carbon in the soil to make polymers, cements, making tiny chambers in, in which they live. And then those tiny little chambers created by bacteria are used to build bigger chambers by little soil animals. And then those little chambers in turn are used to build bigger ones by the soil giants, such as um, ants and earthworms, which on the scale we're talking about are really big animals. And you put all that together and you've got a structure. And upon that life, we depend. 99% of our calories come from the soil. The soil is built by that life, sustained by that life. Without the life, the soil structure collapses. And so we depend on this profusion, this abundance and diversity. George, having established that soil is this extraordinary ecosystem and that we're only beginning to grapple with and appreciate its complexity, what is the problem that it's facing? So when we start ploughing soil and and particularly fertilising it, you can very quickly destroy its structure. And if you apply a lot of nitrate fertilizer in certain circumstances, that will provoke the bacteria to start burning through the carbon in the soil. And of course, that carbon is the cement, is what holds everything together. It's what builds the structures. And if the bacteria burns through them, then the soil collapses. And what happens then is it becomes waterlogged and airless. And paradoxically, the plants which you've just been fertilizing actually become much less able to grow. And that's not to say that fertilizers are useless, but if you apply too much of it, it actually can have paradoxical effects and do the opposite of what you intend. And then what happens if you get an external shock, like, for instance, a severe drought, it can be pushed past its tipping point and it suddenly collapses. And in such circumstances, the erosion rate can rise 6,000-fold virtually overnight, and then you get a dust bowl. To the troubles man makes for himself in the 30s, nature adds disasters of her own. Across the Great Plains from the Texas Panhandle to the Canadian border, the exhausted earth, broken by the plough, parched and eroded, begins to blow away in great black blizzards. It's happening at extraordinary speed. I mean, in, in many parts of the world now, over 70% of soils are, are severely degraded. At least 2 billion people live in places where, where soil is basically collapsing. Um, it, can, it can happen in the blink of an eye. And that's what happened in the famous US Dust Bowl. And in fact, um, a US government commission said, um, one man can start the dust blowing, but one man cannot stop it which is exactly how complex systems work. You know, it can take just a small nudge 
to tip them over the brink. But once they've been tipped over, you can't push them back the way they came. George, I want to point you to, to a paradox here, which is that on the one hand, you say that the quality of soil around the world is degrading. But on the other hand, the fact that food and, and food that grows in that soil has never been more abundant. Well, this is, this is such a, a, a fascinating and terrifying and paradoxical issue. So it's true. We have had an extraordinary era of abundance. I mean, there's no question that in this period, the green revolution, uh, the new crops and new techniques for growing them, has been extremely successful. But we've been living on borrowed time. So many Earth systems have been severely damaged by our production of food. And we just can't keep doing that because, because those systems will eventually collapse and it won't happen gradually and steadily. Like with all complex systems, it happens suddenly. Obviously, um, right now, the global food system is being hammered by the impacts of the invasion of Ukraine um, and the, the loss of food from that system. India was going to be filling that gap in wheat production but now India's been hammered by a massive heat wave, which has shriveled a lot of its wheat crop, and so it can't do that. And things are looking really dire. But while most people are focused on these immediate causes, there's a big underlying problem, which is that the, the system itself has, has lost its resilience. So while we've been swimming in food, a huge amount of that food never goes near a human being. I mean, roughly half the calories that farmers grow go into livestock which we then eventually eat. An increasing amount gets lost through turning it into biofuels, which means burning food, which is about the most decadent habit you could imagine. And, and a fair bit of it gets wasted also. Um, everyone seems to focus on the waste. You know, it's like, oh, we've we got to cut food waste. And yeah, absolutely, we should try to minimise food waste. But actually, that's where you can do least. There was one study showing that we could probably reduce 5% of food losses through the maximal tackling of food waste, we could reduce our food losses by 80% by switching from an animal to a plant-based diet. And so that's where the real interventions, I think, should take place. Hmm. I mean, it's pretty well known that, that eating meat is really bad for the planet. And I'm wondering if one way out of this problem that you're sketching for us is to switch to eating pasture-fed, organic, <laughs> or, or free-range animals. So... This will come as a shock to many people, but the most damaging of all major farm products is organic pasture-fed beef. Now, a lot of people will recoil from, from their headsets um, once they've heard that, but here's the reasoning. So one of the key environmental metrics, I think possibly the most important of all environmental metrics, is the amount of land we use for extractive industries. And by far and away, the greatest form of land use by human beings is using it to graze livestock. So 12% of the world's surface is used for growing crops, but 28% of the world's surface is used for grazing livestock. And the animals who get their food from grazing alone produce just 1% of the world's protein. So this is a phenomenally profligate way of making food. Moreover, while all pasture-fed uh, animals uh, produce more greenhouse gases um, than, than grain-fed animals. Organic pasture-fed produce even more greenhouse gases than your average pas pasture-fed animals because they take longer to grow 
tend to need more land as well. All this is land which could support wild ecosystems, which tend to be far more carbon rich than pasture land is. Um, because they have trees, they have wet soil, for instance, which holds carbon much better. So, so George, you're saying that organic cattle farming is better for the animal, but by the nature of it, actually uses more land, which exacerbates the, these problems with soil that you started by telling us about. Absolutely. There was one study in the United States which showed that if you were to convert all the grain-fed beef production to pasture-fed beef production instead, you would need 270% more land. And that would mean that every forest in the US would need to be felled, every desert would need to be watered, every national park would need to be degazetted. You would take over the whole US and you would still need to import most of your beef, probably from the Brazilian Amazon. So for those of us who are concerned about the food system, you're saying the answer isn't pasture-fed meat or, or free-range meat, that there may actually be no such thing as, as sustainable meat. No, I believe there is no such thing as sustainable meat produced by farmed livestock. Um, it, it's just, uh, it, there's a huge amount of mythology around this, which stems from these old myths about, you know, livestock farming being the seat of innocence and purity and the city being evil and corrupt and stuff. And, and it just does not stand up to scientific scrutiny at all. There's loads of people who believe they're doing the planet a favour by eating organic pasture-fed meat, you could not be doing more harm. It's about the most destructive activity of all. And it's one of the factors, one of the reasons why farming is the most destructive of all industries. It's the major cause of habitat destruction, the major cause of biodiversity loss, the major cause of extinction, a major cause of climate breakdown, a major cause of water pollution, the major cause of, of soil destruction. Um, you know, farming... It comes top of most of those lists. And yet we surround ourselves by these farmyard tales, which bear no relationship to reality. Okay, then if the future of sustainable food isn't in ethical meat production, but actually a more plant-based diet, is there a model to grow cereals and grains that doesn't involve intensive resource-heavy farming that's depleting the soil in the way that you told us about earlier? What would that look like? Yeah, so so I've looked at a whole range of models. And, and while there's no one perfect answer, I think the most exciting new approach is something that's been pioneered by a group called the Land Institute in Kansas. And what they've been developing are perennial grain crops. Now, almost all the grain, and by grain, I mean cereals as well as peas and beans and stuff, that we eat today is produced by annual crops. In other words, crops which live and die within one year. So what the the Land Institute has been doing is to really realise a dream which has been there for at least 100 years, but no one's succeeded until now, which is to say, could we produce our grains on perennial plants instead? And they've had one total success so far, which has been a rice variety, a perennial rice variety, which has the same yields as annual rice, is basically identical to annual rice, but so far has been harvested six times consecutively while maintaining its yields from the same plants. 
And the reason is that perennial plants put down much deeper and thicker roots and they have much tougher stem structures and they can survive um, quite cataclysmic environmental events which annual crops can't survive. So they might be much more climate resilient. But also you can start doing lots of exciting things. You could minimise um, your use of herbicides, minimise your use of fertiliser. Um, I've been eating some of these perennial crops and they're great. I mean, the rice tastes just like rice. It is rice. It's, it's identical. I couldn't tell the difference. George, the thing I'm struggling with is this idea that, that farming should be confined to the past, that it's part of, of the problem. And I'm wondering, what about these like smaller organic farms where the farmer is committed to protecting their soil and finding natural solutions to some of the problems that arise. Are they part of the solution or am I just being a bit hopelessly romantic about it? Well, some are and some aren't. Um, There's been a tendency to generalise, say, well, small farmers doing traditional techniques are necessarily good and some are doing fantastic work and, and we absolutely have to multiply the work they're doing. But People who tend to fetishize that um, are very often yield blind. And this is a crucial flaw. Farming has to be high yield because if it's not high yield, it sprawls. In other words, it has to use an awful lot of land to produce the same amount of food. And agricultural sprawl is a far greater issue than urban sprawl. The built environment, all the places where we live, occupy 1% of Uh, of the planet's land surface, whereas farming occupies 40% of of the planet's surface. So agricultural sprawl is a much bigger ecological issue than urban sprawl is, and yet it's one that we ignore. If we allow farming to be low yield, then farming must necessarily occupy a very high land area. Now, some traditional agroecology is extremely high yield and very, very successful. Some is very low yield. And, and I think we have to start being aware of the numbers. Uh, we have to become food numerate and to say, right, let's focus on the high yield, low impact farming, preferably done by small farmers, and see how we can multiply that. But we can't afford to multiply low yield farming. Okay, so other than these high yield food crops, you say that to secure the world's food supply, we have to actually move beyond farming. And I want you to explain this to me slowly. How do we move past this practice that's been the very bedrock of civilization? So I'm not talking about all farming here, but I'm talking about a very large part of it, which is the farming that produces our protein and fat which is produced to a large extent from animals, from livestock, but also from soybeans, from palm oil, coconut oil, um, other edible oils and the rest of it. And that is simply a cost which the world can no longer afford. Uh, You know, if we carry on on the current trajectory of meat eating, there really is no hope. You know, we, we will trash earth systems. Um, at the moment in, in the UK, um, we eat on average 82 kilograms of meat per person per year, which is roughly our body weight. The global average is 42, but people are converging towards our level of meat eating. And at current rates, while the human population is rising by 1% a year, the livestock population is rising by 2.4% a year. That's much more of a population crisis than the growth in human numbers. So 
My radical and controversial proposal is, is to take protein and fat production out of farming altogether and move it to the factory. And I know people are horrified by this idea. I've had plenty of horror directed at me. If you'd like, I can ask you about some of, of that horror. I mean, this has understandably been controversial among farming groups who say that this doesn't just disrupt farming businesses. It would mean the end of a whole way of life, a whole identity and a culture that comes from farming sheep and cattle and other animals. I can understand. I can totally understand their, their reluctance to embrace a completely different vision. But we now have this great gift to humanity, which is the ability to produce our protein and fat in breweries from microbes. Hold on. <laughs> Making fat and protein in breweries from microbes? And I was the first person outside the laboratory on earth to eat a pancake made from bacterial flour in a company lab in Helsinki in Finland. And the shocking and extraordinary thing is that it tasted just like a pancake. So one really? small... Yep. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I, I, it was quite uncanny. We had to dilute the flour with wheat flour because um, the bacterial flour is 60% protein and about 30% fat. This pancake tasted just like a pancake. But obviously pancakes isn't, you know, isn't the be all and end all. The, 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 the thing is that you can produce now with, with the soil bacteria, which are hydrogen oxygenating bacteria, which means that they make their own energy from hydrogen. So you don't need to feed them on any plant material or anything like this. You just need to give them hydrogen, carbon dioxide, water, and a very small sprinkling of nutrients. I mean, tiny quantity, really, of everything. Um, and, and they will produce in extraordinary abundance protein and fat, which can be used then to make just about anything, not just to substitute the um, meat and milk products which we eat today, but also to develop an entirely new cuisine. I mean, just as the first farmers who domesticated a cow never imagined camembert, right? We can't imagine where this will go in terms of the sort of post-agricultural revolution and the changes that that might make to our diet. But one thing we can say is that it can be much more closely tailored to our nutritional needs than our current diet is. George, what's interesting about your argument is that contrary to what many environmentalists have advocated for many years, your answer to this problem isn't to go back to the land, to lighten it and simplify the way we eat. But in fact, it's the opposite, to embrace technology, the latest trends in, in food engineering, as a means to try to maintain our current diets, but in a way that's sustainable. So I, I think we as environmentalists have chosen the wrong battleground. We've, we've chosen to fight over the technologies themselves rather than over who owns them and for whose purpose are they owned and how they're used. And, and so the key issue here for me is not the technology, it's who owns and controls that technology. So this revolution is happening. It's happening anyway, but we need to get in there at the ground floor as environmentalists and say, this must be done for us, not against us. And what that means is intellectual property must be weak and antitrust laws must be strong. Ideally, these technologies should be open source so that anyone can use them without paying license fees. And if that were the case, then basically you could set up microbreweries all over the world, anywhere where there's a bit of sunlight or a bit of wind to produce the electricity to make hydrogen. You could set up 
a microbrewery and pr- be producing your own protein and fat very cheaply um, to meet local demands to local specifications. And paradoxically, because a lot of food justice and food sovereignty campaigners are horrified by the idea of, of, of producing food in factories rather than on farms. Paradoxically, this could deliver both food justice and food sovereignty far more effectively than the current farming system does. But but George, there's there's something about discussing food in terms of its raw elements, proteins, fats, carbohydrates, that makes me think that we're talking here about one of life's great pleasures and, and we're turning it into essentially fuel for human activity. Is there a way of convincing people to, to make that kind of mental transition about something that is so essential to our, our lives and also our lifestyles. Look, I hate to break it to you, but at the moment we survive on protein, fat and carbohydrates. That's what we live on. I mean, we don't call it that. We, you know, we, might, we might call it a, um, a ham sandwich, but it's still protein, fat and carbohydrates. And we like to sort of tell ourselves, well, you know, we don't call them those because they're wrapped up in the foods we eat. And they'll still be wrapped up in the foods we eat. And, and we, you know, there'll be lots of different kinds of delicious food made, which contains these. But when you're talking about meeting our needs, you have to talk about meeting our needs for specific things. And, you know, and we need a particular amount of protein every day, roughly 55 grams on average per person per day. We need that to eat. We need a a certain amount of carbohydrate as well and a certain amount of fat. We, we, we have to have these things and we have to be empirical about deciding how we're going to produce them without devouring the planet. Um, and if we get this right, we could replace our age of extinction with an age of regenesis. But if we get this wrong, we are committed to extinction. Coming up, a vision for a sustainable food system and the first steps of how to get there. George, from what you've told me, there doesn't seem to be one single solution to the future of food. But from all your research in the last few months and years, do you have a vision of what a sustainable planet looks like, one that can feed everyone? Or is it that the particular vision hasn't come into view yet, but we know the direction we need to go in to to begin to see it? I think we're some of the way there. And and so what I would picture is that um, we continue to grow arable crops. We wouldn't need so many of them. And the reason for that is that we feed so many of those arable crops to animals, and that's a very inefficient way of doing it. And ideally, a lot of that would be perennial grain. But, you know, we need to diversify the system. So we need to be doing different things in different places or different things in the same place to make the general food system more resilient. Um, We would produce more fruit and vegetables than we do at the moment. We should be eating a lot more worldwide. And I think we should be subsidizing fruit and vegetables at the point of sale because they are simply unaffordable to many of the world's people, even many of the UK's people. You know, at the moment, we spend between 500 and $600 billion a year on farm subsidies around the world. And most of those 
do no one any good except a few extremely rich landowners. Um, they don't reduce the price of food, most of them. They um, cause enormous environmental destruction. Let's repurpose those subsidies. Let's pay people for environmental restoration and subsidize fruit and veg at the point of sale, making them much cheaper. So a little less grain, more fruit and veg, no animal production, and instead we could produce all our protein and fat on the land area distributed around the world of less than a small European province. I mean, it could really be a tiny amount of land with highly efficient, effective um, brewing, precision fermentation of microbes producing the protein and the fat we need. And that would then enable us to rewild and restore vast amounts of the world's surface, to, to, to see a great reflowering of life, to, 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 to see um, many of our ecosystems which are on the brink of collapse being brought back from that brink. And we can draw down a load of the carbon dioxide we've released, potentially stopping the, the disastrous impacts of climate breakdown at the same time. And for people who listen to that vision and say, yes, I like that, I want that, how do we get there? What do you suggest? What are the first steps? So I think the first step is to recognise the problem that we face. And and suddenly, just in the last few days, people have been doing that with some dire warnings that we're now entering a food emergency, a global food emergency. So that at least, horrendous as it is, gives us the opportunity to say, okay, We've got to change this whole system. The system isn't working. It's not working for Earth systems. It's not working for human systems either. It has to change. One of the first things I'd change is to change those farm subsidies. This is all public money, you know, uh, half a trillion dollars of public money being spent every year um, on maintaining a highly dysfunctional and destructive farm system. Let's repurpose that money um, and put it into genuinely um, regenerative land uses. Um, that alone, just repurposing farm subsidies, would make a huge difference. But also, let's see so a massive government push to get precision fermentation rolled out worldwide so that we very quickly start to derive a lot of our food from these breweries making a whole range of new products. George Monbiot, your new book is Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. That was author George Monbiot. Thank you so much to him. Apart from his new book, you can read George's regular columns at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound designed by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. Back Monday. This is The Guardian.